Welcome to episode eight of season three of Ask Adelaide and Anna, commissioned by the National Museum in Norway. In this episode, we're going to talk to Lisa, who invited us to do the podcast. We actually met her in season two at Coast Contemporary. And then Anna and I will discuss some of the, what would you call it? Uh, annoyances? <laughs> no. <laughs> and challenges? Reflections. Reflections. And now we'll hear from staff at the National Museum. Are you all recording now? Yeah, I'm recording. Uh, and also I should say my uh, oldest and uh, my partner, they're watching the, la- the uh, last installation of The Hobbit uh, in the adjacent room. So uh, I'm hoping that it won't be too much orc elf hobbit sounds okay so far so good um this is our last episode of ask adelaide and anna the of this season that's fantastic Uh, how do you feel about that how do you feel i feel relieved yeah (laughs) i'm also very happy that we're we'll doing we're doing this last episode uh which is actually uh like at this moment, as we recorded everything else in March, it's been really weird how like everything's been unfolding in the world and and yeah, and the recordings were still at this other time mm. yeah, it's weird it's been weird listening to that and then editing and I invited you guys to shake up the institution, open up the institution <laughs> for it to look at itself and people to look at it as well yeah i think that's what we wanted to do to open up the institution by giving the the uh content to someone else to kind of explore us and i have to say that was the intention um and then you can speak about how well that went I think maybe we'll do that after after we hang up with you, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> we were thinking we'd start with a, a question. I don't know if anyone answered this one. So the question we got is, do you have any advice on how I can become a guest curator at an art institution? Uh, yes, let's try that. So um, do I have any advice on becoming a guest curator? That's, I, I, there are two ways I want to answer that. The first is, of course, just kind of be there and have good ideas. And that's the kind of utopian answer to that. But I think the reality is that there's a certain amount of networking and uh, being a part of a community that kind of preface that. I think that it's, oh, that's such a complex question. So this thing that precedes it. So let's say I'm asking this question. How do I get that um, network in that context to get there where I can do this? Right, right, right. So that that's a complex answer as well, because it, it, it it's the whole structure, right? 
uh, on the one hand, uh, you have to, I think, be a part of the art community in some way, um, in some way or another. So to be a part of the art community, often you come from an education that has to do with art or culture managing or maybe you've done like a magazine, online magazine or in paper or something to have with the cultural community, right? Um, and it's all about networking. You have to know the right people within the institution to get invited, I think. It's seldom application, like, hello, can I be a guest curator at your institution? That doesn't really work, even though I, I really would like that to be the thing, right? So the other, on the other hand, to be a part of that network as well, you have to have access to that kind of education which means that the education is institutions have to be open to you getting that in education. And I mean, it's in, in no way there's free schooling for the first 12 years, and then there's student loans, but everyone gets student loans, right? And it's a cheap loan as well. But I think that it, it's kind of disheartening when it comes to art, institutions and art schooling because they're looking for a certain language from the application applicants as well it's not just anyone you know that has access to the art institutions either um, so so I'm sorry I'm getting really serious really fast but <laughs> this was our light question <laughs> yeah we were like let's start with the light one <laughs> as I said I wish it was just like just just go knocking on doors, right? Just knock on every single door you get to and talk like nonstop. Like uh, discuss your ideas with everyone you, you, you meet that has something to do with a specific institution or a gallery or some kind of art space. That will be the dream of all dreams, right? Yeah, that would be the dream. I was like, hey, someone's going to steal that idea. Yeah, that's what I, That's exactly what I would think. Yeah. Yeah, but that too. But I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's almost like you have to look a certain way and talk a certain way to even get lended an ear. That's so horrible. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think, of, I think of curating as even more uh, elitist than, than art, being an artist. I feel like you meet people who are artists from all kinds of backgrounds, but if when someone, I mean, and, and now there are a lot of artist curators, but I think most of the curators I've met seem to have a certain class, maybe? Like mm -hmm. when their lives seem, you're like, how did this person get in this position? How do they make money? It's just so such a blurry thing um, for a lot of curators that I've encountered. I guess me too. And then you'll have to ask which people or which kind of, what kind of network do they invite their guest curators from? Which would be the okay. same kind of, be the same kind of network, right? So it, it takes a lot to kind of open up on your own prejudices and your own structures as well. 
So I don't think it's easy. It depends from which position you you apply from, I guess. I think we need a lot of new institutions. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I was just thinking about this recently um, when a group of colleagues and I, well, when I've been doing some political work and someone said, well, now we're not, this might not be good for our careers. But then I was like, well, we'll just make our own institution. <laughs> not that I'm really like, I'm too lazy to make an institution. But uh, as my friend said as well, because all of this shit, hit the fan with uh with trying to address racism and uh lack of diversity in diversity in Norway. She was like, let's just make our own country. We're like Well yeah I would really love to do that, but that's too much work, isn't it? And do we yeah. really want to make our own country because once you do that you will become a country you will become like a nation which means that you would have the same wouldn't you run into the same problems even though you started like a friends group right and you still don't want it to make your own country just be able to do what you actually want to do yeah but still do what you want to do but you're still a part of a global thing right so you are still a part of every set of norms you're you're still a part of neoliberalism i love the idea of just making your own institution but either you have to like inherit a shitload of money to make it happen or you would have to have your own be really rich to make it happen to be free from all of the norms within the art community right or you'd have to apply for funding at the institutions, at the like Kulturrode or or whatever, all of these Fritt Ur or and they have a set of notions and norms that you have to fill to get funding for the institution that you're trying to establish. So then you're still in a box. So you're still yeah, right. So you're still in the box. I think so recently Dave Chappelle I don't know if you saw the um the show that he put on recently I guess it was like one of the first public events um and a lot of people were critiquing the things that he said because they said a lot of um like comedians like him they you know have a good critique about racism but then they are uh misogynist and so they if the if they were to get like some people just want power so that they're the one in the position of power mm. not so that they can change the whole structure they just don't like where they are on the ladder mm. so they want to uh, improve their position but then somebody else has to be at the bottom and so for in order to us to have any real kind of change uh we have to kind of like destroy that those hierarchies and bring mm. everyone with us and not just like fight for a room for ourselves so like to create your own institution um, in the end, who are you leaving out? And you just become the person in, in power yeah. who's going to be critiqued 50 <laughs> years from now. <laughs> um, do you have a, do you have an advice up your sleeve, Adelie? Yeah, yeah, you were the most, most articulate of us, us three when it came to that question. So do you have an advice? For, for how to be a guest curator? I don't have advice for how to be a guest curator because I'm... I'm not interested in curation at all. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting because you can bring, uh, you can bring a new perspective. You know, especially as a woman or a person of color, like you can, you know, you know, it's easier for us to notice 
the lack um, in certain conversations being mm. had in the art world. And so it could be interesting to say, oh, I would love to bring all these people together and have an exhibition. But the actual work of it, I'm not interested mm. in it. Um, I, um, I just realized I have some advice. Oh, good. Okay. I, th- I think I might have some advice. Because um, I was just advised, uh, uh, asked to be a guest curator at an art institution. And, and I think, uh, of course, it has to do with the things that you mentioned, Lisa. But I'm going to sort of like break some other things down that I also think can be useful to, to get to the position that someone emails you and asks, will you be a guest curator, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, I want to hear how it happened. Yeah, so um, a few years ago, I had a... Uh, residency uh, outside of Oslo in a nice city or a town and um, I wanted to do some work but I also was like placed in this amazing building and I was like oh it would be great to to like invite cool people to show work here so I had like a I, I did have a little bit of uh, like sort of uh, funding and I just invited people so basically I curated with different uh with a friend uh two different friends uh like three to three shows like kind of hardly any budget but it was kind of an exercise for us but most of all it was also because i wanted to have like people visiting the town because i was like in this new place and i was like oh i want to uh try out uh, curating and have people visiting and and like do test new stuff to me uh like doing that and doing several exhibitions uh, researching together with colleagues for each one and then like trying to figure out like which people to work with and so on gave me work experience so like with any other job apart from network you also need work experience and how can mm-hmm. you do that um what what are your interests uh, what are you interested in um how can you how can you work with that how can you build experience uh, in an affordable way for you and of course, again, uh, like you said, with network, uh, when you have uh, little money, you even more so are like are, are depend you're dependent on network, or like favors and stuff, because there's like no hardly no money circulating. So I've been thinking a lot of like what kind of network am I building? I want to build networks based on shared values and shared goals. Like so, the network in itself doesn't become the main goal but the like what are my goals and values and when do they correlate with other people yeah so yes of course it's like a network but it's also about like giving yourself work experience somehow Mm. and make that work experience visible for the people you are interested in uh, or the institution how did um whoever wrote you how did they know that you would be interested in curating because you have before or they saw yeah yeah, they had before and it was like someone from that place i had been curating like doing okay. those things and later on I had been doing like I've been curating I've been working with an artist run space in Stavanger for a couple of years yeah. but it's like sort of like a different way of going into researching and bringing like brains and art together <laughs> but yeah so it basically was like work experience and like mediating that work experience which it was like my addition to an advice of how to sort of what content to bring to that network and what content in the networks you're in are you interested in? This is after you became an artist, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm not at all like I'm two lines under everything that you said. I'm also trying to sort of uh, think of like, okay, if you're already like a curator, how do I get a job or how do I become a yeah, curator? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do you get it's invited like, into yeah. institutions or get your perspective in there, right? I was thinking that it also depends on what the art world deems interesting at that time. So if you're doing a lot of curatorial work in smaller spaces or even creating your own space, but you're not doing the perspectives that the art institutions are wanting to do right now, because it's, it's also trend-based because it's market, right? So the exhibition ideas that the institutions are interested in is also based on market and trend. So I'm also thinking that another interesting question would be um, how do I have to compromise my own curatorial practices to be invited into guest curating within the institutions because then you're talking about a larger programmatic thing right i was just thinking while you're talking that um an interesting way that i've seen someone get into curation but that also is a way of leveraging power is i have uh my friend khalil was invited to have a solo exhibition at a museum at a university and for part of the exhibition there's um, a space where he said well for this space i want to curate um, other artists who have work that would be in conversation with my own. So in that way, he's he's not only turning um, an opportunity for showing his work into one to curating as well, but mm. he's also bringing in other artists who, you know, they the people at the museum have never heard of and giving us, an, like, because he included me in it as well, so that, that's why I'm thinking of this, um, but giving us an opportunity to have our work shown somewhere new in a, in a conversation with his work, which is already going to be written about and discussed. Um, as part of his exhibition. Yeah, and that, I've been, right, because I've seen a couple of places doing that as well. I mean, the one exhibition that I'm thinking of is uh, the Norwegian artist Sandra Mujinga, what she did in Bergen uh, last year. So she had one, she had an exhibition and then she curated the programming around it and the catalog as well, bringing in different voices instead of having the institution laying out the program for her exhibition, mm. she did. So she planned mm. and invited people into all the discussions that were happening. She curated the catalog and the different texts and that sort of thing that were happening. And they were all artists. So while doing this, she also showcased their practices. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess that, that's a way of doing it as well. I'm sorry for being so, so okay. pessimistic. No, but that's actually like uh, how to be. So you should just become an artist and then you just like flip the situation. And like that, that's that's what you're describing, isn't it? If you're an in, if you're an artist who's interested in curating, that's one way to do it, to tie it into the conditions of having an exhibition. Like this little gallery to the side will be. Um, curated by me and works in conversation with my peers. Should we move on? I really want to ask the last one. Oh, please. We recorded most of the episodes, all of the other episodes in March, and now we're in June. Um, 
you know, towards the end of June, actually. And a lot has changed since then. In the United States, um, a lot of people have been killed by police, as usual, but people are paying more attention, people are protesting, and then institutions, in response to that, were posting uh, black squares on social media as it as an act of supposed solidarity. And so that gave artists uh, the opportunity to call those institutions out because they're su- so supposedly suddenly on board with, you know, like fighting against racism, but then they haven't examined uh, their own racism and their own issues. So I'm curious how you think museums should change as a result of people around the world paying more attention to institutional racism. Mm. First of all, I think the uh, black square, as you were saying as well, Adelaide, it it lacks accountability, like in a major sense. And it also blacked out a lot of uh, the uh, the work that uh, the protests were doing on social media. So I was totally against that from the get-go. But uh, the question was whether how how to hold them accountable and no, what how, how to How should they do. change? How should it change? How do you think, So in your dream, in your dream world, now museums have posted Black Square, they've made a statement. What do you want to see happen? What do you think should happen advice-wise? I think that, um, I've been thinking a lot about that. Uh, the whole defund the police, abolish the police movement. I think that that can be um, be uh, referred to as a movement as something that should happen within the institutions as well when it comes to art history because we need to take the whole of art history and throw it out and then start building it up again. I think that's the main work that institutions need to do because we've been trying to, I think that institutions, museums in all of its shades has been trying to um, find ways of uh, uh, addressing diversity since the 70s and nothing has really changed. So I think that it's crucial that if you're talking about like Often in the conversations when it comes to diversifying your exhibition plans, say, then often the response would be, well, we're looking for quality. So it will naturally happen because we're doing this looking for quality. So it will naturally happen that uh, the, uh, the exhibition program will, will be diversified. I don't think that's true. And I think that if you think that art history is filled with white people and white uh, whiteness um, themes, then you have to re-examine art history because there's a there's a lot of work that's being um, overlooked, right? So I think that mm. as I what I started with was abolish art history. I mean, start <laughs> over again. Just start over again. Because anything else is not happening. It's not working. I think there's a lot of nice efforts, but I think we're going about it the wrong way. 
I think that a lot of the diversity work that we're trying to do has a tinge of white saverism in them. Like we want to feel good about putting on a black or indigenous or queer or something that we view as marginal uh, artists in and we want to feel good about doing that. And that shouldn't be why you do it. It should be because you want to discuss art history. You want to discuss art and you want to address a whole nation. At least when it comes to the National Museum, we're, we're an authority. We're supposed to be talking, we're supposed to be collecting and showing and talking about national art identity. And we're not doing that right now. And the efforts that we do it's 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 not good enough. So yeah, I've been thinking a lot about well, defund the police, abolish the police. I think that campaign would be good within an, within an institution when it comes to art history. It makes so much sense. I've just been like trying to learn like the different meanings of defund the police, and even the even just this like major restructuring, completely like funding things in a completely different way or restructuring money and in distribution. I think that's definitely what has to be done because all of the stuff is just sort of this decorative stuff. Like there's no, there's not enough mentioning in strategies and in budgets. It's just like, I mean, most places doesn't have that within their strategy. I mean, uh, within an institution that I worked or within uh, the National Museum we've been uh, <laughs> we've been talking about the new strategy and there it's an institution that is reasonably aware of diversifying content and collections and programming and that sort of stuff which is extremely important but still, we don't have any anti-racist strategy. We have a strategy when it comes to discrimination. And that's kind of the, the whole thing is, that's the umbrella term, right? Discrimination. And we also use like ethnic identity or ethnic discrimination. I mean, ethnic discrimination and I, I think that every single institution in Norway, let's, let's just talk about art institution, every single art institution in Norway needs to, to uh, replace ethnic discrimination with racism because ethnic discrimination is just this, this kind of word that just, just evades everything. You don't really have to commit mm -hmm. to anything. But once you say racism, it has this whole like this whole discussion and, and confrontation in it, which means that you have to act. I think that we won't get any further unless we can actually discuss racism and being racist. Because what happens now whenever we talk about it, it's like, but I'm not racist. 
Yeah, yeah, you are. I mean, it's a racist mm-hmm. structure. That doesn't mean you're Nazi or some kind of Hitler, KK, uh, going around killing people. But it means that it needs a serious pointed word to start discussing the things that are important within that in that structure of things but yeah i i i'm i hear what you're saying because in the past i've used the word diversity uh, and when i should have used the word uh black or you know just have been more pointed because i talked about another episode when interviewing for a job i asked them how were they what were their plans for increasing diversity at their university and uh they were like we reflect the diversity of portland which you know, I, I mean, I was gonna, I was basically saying like, why are there, why am I not seeing more black people here? And that's what I should have said. Um, cause when you say diversity, it can include so many things, gender diversity, um, you know, international, whether or not they're an international, uh, program, but I was specifically commenting on the, on the lack of presence of black people that I was seeing. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's one of the problems within the Norwegian language as well. I mean, (laughs) after a lot of, uh, after the demonstration in Oslo, um, which became the headline for, uh, oh my God, so many people are going to get COVID now instead Mm -hmm. of actually, uh, and I mean, it was a precaution from all of the, the, the protesters to have um uh have on their um what is it? Mask? masks shit i forgot the word mask how could i it's the same in norwegian yeah i know right <laughs> even though there were precautions where everyone had to wear masks the topic of like the 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 uh uh, the main topic from those protests protests were um, were uh, how many new cases it would be of COVID nineteen after the demonstrations, instead of talking about the actual issues on why people were going into the streets even though COVID. One of our most notorious politicians had a comment in one of our biggest news outlets on how Norwegians are the least racist people of all peoples in all the universe. <laughs> so that wasn't helping at all. Yeah. Uh, so we need we need <laughs> we need a new whole new language for talking about this. I think we need to take racism back into the vocabulary. I mean, the last conversation I had just kind of dismantled into, I'm not racist. Yes, you're racist. No, I'm not racist. Would that make me racist? So, I mean... (laughs) People see it as a personal attack. Yeah, these are smart people. I mean, these are brilliant people and it still comes down to that. But yeah, I'm I'm sticking with uh, abolish art history as an answer to the question. When you said that, I pictured, um, uh, you know, like the monuments of art history toppling. Like, who would that be? Picasso. <laughs> you know, like they yeah, topple yeah, yeah. them. Because there's so many, we know, we know the, you know, we know about the history of these people in the same way that we know about all these Confederate generals and, um, 
uh, what would you call them? Slave traders. Mm. And, but still, they're they're getting the why. How many Picasso exhibitions do we need? You know, like how mm. many, how many times do we need to see these same people over and over again? Mm. When there's a whole wealth of production of knowledge and art throughout the whole world that's been happening since during and since then yeah um, i think isn't that really suspicious i mean there's five people in the whole of mm-hmm. global art history that has done anything yeah. I'm, I'm exaggerating of course but i mean right right it's 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 weird it's like a conspiracy those are the artists that you don't even have to leave what the place where you live to see them they'll come there someday yeah, yeah, yeah. it will be that show mm. <laughs> did i ask you a question Yeah, ab- abolish. Mm. Abolish. And now time for the Adelaide okay, and Anna recap. Last episode of season three. It's been so much more work doing this season than I expected. Definitely. I think mostly because of the distance between all of us and the... I feel like some of the joy was taken out of it by being at home and like editing alone and you know. Yeah. Like uh And then just like you always being like up at midnight. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things that um I mean I should have expected but that was the most surprising to me was the way that people were um being cautious about what they said. Like there were some yeah. yeah, there were people just very aware of the fact that they were being recorded, which I guess that happens to me too if I'm being a guest on someone's podcast, but um but the way that that can kind of like stop the conversation from going places it needs to. Mm. But but wasn't that also like most of all the museum people? Yeah. It's weird to be invited by a museum to give them advice and then to be so cautious about everything that's said. Like it seemed like most people wanted to paint the museum in a good light about the good thing, the good work that's being done. One there's two things like when you there was one episode where you were talking about the need for more permanent positions uh for people of color. Mm. But then at the same time I started thinking about people who've been at the museum for a long time and people I know have been at museums for a long time and how they can become and I'm not talking about people of color, I'm just talking about people in general can become complacent. Because they have a comfortable job, they know how things work, and to shake things up can kind of be annoying for them, you know, because they've gotten to a place where they know what to expect from the job. And do you find that? I think that's a good point, or maybe because then they're they, they sort of also get. Um, oh yeah, I think that goes for everyone, and maybe sort of related to what Lisa said as well, like with the hierarchies in the museum. Mm-hmm. It's also something about like sort of your identity also becomes sort of that position. But I think with the position is more than the fact that it's like the same person that has that position. It's about like uh, economic stability, so that uh, people of color would not have these like project positions. You know, like I'll give you a job for one year, right? <laughs> But the permanent position is for life. This other. This blonde one who's been here for already for fifteen years. Yeah, and that's when I when uh, you know that's a matter of discrimination over time because a lot of times like when we were talking in season two um, to some curators they were saying there we would love to have more diverse staff but there's no positions open and basically it's like these people have been given positions years ago are holding on to them 
And they're, you know, if you want to increase diversity, then it's these small contracts. And that's detrimental to people of color who are trying to make change in institutions. But at the same time, I think that um, the system maybe needs to be like contract based, but longer contracts, like everyone knows that their job's going to end after five years. And so Mm -hmm. their goal is to make the biggest change they can at the museum in that time. And everyone, not just, you know, bringing in people of color to diversify your programming for a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. So that way, like, it's not, it's not as insecure as a job that's for a year. But then at the same time, you're not cushy. It's not like you. This is your job for life, and you can just get comfortable. Yeah. I think this thing with permanent positions, well, it's not. I think it's more not all. It's all maybe it's like something, some social democratic, or I believe that everyone should be able to have a job and like a stable income Mm -hmm. so more than the so i think that's big part of the reason why i'm like it should be permanent positions but as long as there are permanent positions they can't be used for discrimination somehow right white people get to lock in their job for life and then everyone else has to just squeeze in when they're needed yeah so do you want me to just read you the list of things I had that we had at some point written down we wanted to talk about and then see if we want to talk about any of them? Yeah, and then maybe I can say, because usually, like, you've been the one being up really, really late and really, really tired, like, after midnight. Yeah. And now it's, like, five past ten, mm-hmm. and I'm, like, <laughs> and my brain is not working, so I'm, like, <laughs> yeah. but um, it's it's kind of a, maybe it's, like, a bit of a chill season, because, like, someone is always tired. Yeah. Or... <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So the things I had were long answers versus dialogue. I don't know. Oh yes. Uh-huh. I I know. Maybe I maybe that was my point. I because I was thinking that, um, for some of our guests, they sort of really wanted to know what the questions would be, uh, before, mm-hmm. before we, had them, uh, on. And that in general was, not helpful for sort of a good. Um, for a dialogue. Rhythm in, in the con- yeah, in the conversations. Yeah, like it's something about like partly that if you have a dialogue, you can sort of go into subjects or, uh, in sort of a more playful way. And it can also like bring up new things because like the ball is being like thrown back and forth. But also, this goes out to us as editors and our listeners. It's like harder to listen to when there's like one person talking for a long time. Yeah, but I mean, that might just be us, too, because, um, you know, sometimes when we've worried about that for an episode, someone's written me and been like, I really loved hearing so-and-so speak. Oh, yeah, that's so good. Yeah. So it's it's hard, too, also to know, because we have our own opinions after listening to something over and over and over again, or just hearing ourselves. Um, Yeah. We have a different feeling. Or all these, like, annoying, like, likes, like, like, totally. (laughs) Or, like... (laughs) And then we edit out all of that... And then we still hate the <laughs> hate the conversation, but then actually it's like totally fine. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that we had wanted to talk about was um, there's a, a big difference between the way that people who work for the museum speak and artists. And we had discussed yeah. this before, how artists perhaps have more, I mean, at least in Norway, um, are not beholden to anybody. Would you say so? Like, you're not, there's no one, 
I'm sure some people feel a little cautious about what they're saying publicly, but it seemed like they felt like they had the freedom to be critical of institutions. But yeah, a lot less. Yeah. I think that has to do so much with the funding system. Because the funding system is, like, the juries that give out the funding are all peers. Mm -hmm. And they're all being, like, swapped every two years. So there's not, like, this one institution or this one person you have to be... You don't want to make your enemy. It's like it's it's sort of more of a uh, spread out. And this swapping, the... this swapping thing is is basically what I'm trying to say. Like you know, you have this opportunity and this power for a limited amount of time, and you know that there's going to be a change, and so that affects how you behave. Oh yeah, yeah. So I think in that way, it's, definitely. Yeah, you see that reflected in the way that artists are talking or feel free to be critical, of, even of places yeah. that they've shown before or institutions that they've worked Absolutely. with. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. I've been learning so much about like this, the value of the uh, distribution of power, or like to always try to sp- to spread power as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, yeah, <laughs> for it to be as fair as possible. I think that's one of the most important things I've learned from our recording this, like especially from season two, is to be able to recognize when you have power. Because we kept talking to people who we saw as in positions of power who were saying, like, I'm not, I don't have a lot of power, but uh, they actually do. And so to be able to recognize when you have power and be able to share that is a huge part of making the kind of changes that we've been talking about. Mm. Parallel, while we've been, been releasing these episodes, um, I've been, um, together with Hanan and some other artists in Norway, we've been part of a group that's been distributing these demands for art institutions based on like uh, resources on race that the white pube this uh british art critic duo has published so we sent out these uh, uh, letters demanding um anti-racist work and commitment to art institutions and saying like they're not good enough mm-hmm. and i think the most surprising thing was sort of the feedback that uh that there was like coverage and like national paper and stuff and realizing fuck there's like some actual power that this group has now or like we have at least like a a platform or and then it was like shit okay we got to do this the right way like who are we going to point that who are we going to talk to um because that was like the most surprising part sometimes when you when it's mostly i think i recognize my own power when other people point at me and say i have power Mm mm-hmm and in, I think in that sense, like accountability is so important because mm-hmm. it's so difficult to see yourself or me, if I'm just talking about me, like when I have power. Right. That it's almost always someone has to tell me you have power Yeah. for me yeah. to say, oh, I have power mm-hmm. in a certain, certain aspect or in a certain time. Yeah, because it, that power can come about so gradually that you don't notice that you have it and you don't notice yeah. what, how you can use it for good. While we've been editing, and while you've been editing the last ones, uh, and talking about like how the museum people have not been uh, good at being honest, that's what I would say. Or like, it's uh, it seems to have a lot to do with their their um, sort of un like. Like, they haven't figured out, like, who are they speaking from? They're speaking, like, in a personal manner, but they're always trying to represent the museum. 
So it's almost like when they're being personal, it almost uh, hides the fact that they're representing the institution. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a cover-up. Yeah, and I I wonder if that has to do with how they how they were approached about this podcast, because we don't we didn't have the opportunity to go to the museum and meet anyone. So we couldn't like you went like last season when we were at coast contemporary, we were able to meet people and talk to them and then say, Hey, you're, you're really interesting. Do you want to come to our cabin and be on a, you know, featured on an episode of Mm. the podcast? So we were kind of like given the people to talk to and who knows how they were prompted before they spoke to us. I mean, I, not, not to say there weren't a lot of great people with uh great stuff to say, but I felt like some of it was, publicity for the museum yeah and then it makes you Definitely. wonder and it, yeah. but but then i'm also of course like many people are proud of the place they work at and stuff but uh we are here to give advice but uh i think we should bring up the fact that when we had proposed this podcast uh and then then when they were going to share it we had like issues um with our with our project description that already said we are here to give you help mm-hmm. and some people didn't like that and that no like no but um, the museum can't admit that they need help that wouldn't look good <laughs> and, <laughs> and like well why what why would you ask an advice <laughs> podcast to come <laughs> yeah like it's not like uh, or do maybe they think that they just like the museum are the great advisors and they were the only ones to give advice mm. perhaps See, part of the reason why we were interested in having students was to shake up the idea of who has the capacity to give advice. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I mean, it was we could see that students didn't have enough experience sometimes to answer questions, just not, not enough experience in the art world or not enough experience with the issues mm-hmm. that we were talking about. But they had good they had good advice, you know, like everyone has something to contribute. And I think it was interesting to bring art students into it who are at like the beginning of in many ways at the beginning of their their uh career or their entry into the art world i think also it's kind of interesting and like one of the other issues that we discussed because sometimes when people say stuff that seem um a little politician like speaking you know like when they're sort of avoiding the question or like uh, talking about something else or what I was also thinking about what's that English word like in a political process when they do all this stuff to sort of postpone the decision oh um you know what I mean yeah. like you do all this stuff for so that there won't be an actual vote or there won't it won't sort of move on well uh, yeah I can't think of the word are are these people aware that they're that they're saying these other things not to talk about the important stuff or yeah I was kept sort of meta or trying to understand like what are they doing are they aware of what they're doing or when people pretend like they can't talk about issues beyond their specific field you're like in this bigger institution where you have meetings and you know what's going on and you've seen all the exhibitions you've seen all the programming you've seen what kinds of people come in and which people don't and you still act like you can't comment on that you still act yeah. like you have no nothing to contribute. But it is difficult, though, because they were all sort of there from the museum. So there was like this main huge sort of loyalty issue. Yeah. And then at the same time, we're being commissioned by the museum 
Um, which for me, I didn't feel any loyalty. I've never been there. <laughs> I've never been to Oslo. Like, so it's kind of this abstract thing for me where I can just broadly critique institutions because I've been part of some oh, and I love that. yeah, I've worked at them. I've seen all the things that they do and the things that they say that they don't live up to. So, um, for me, it wasn't hard, but I, how, how do you feel since you, Oh, I think it's been okay. And, and even now when I've been doing some, uh, publicly criticizing the museum outside of the podcast, mm-hmm. it almost felt like, um, that I had a certain amount of power because I'm already have like, I have also more contracts than this one with the museum. So I'm like, you're already in dialogue with me. You fucking listen mm-hmm. <laughs> or something like that. Um, keep coming back to like this, um, sort of the friendliness of bite the hands that feeds you. Yeah. <laughs> or the, the fact that it's like this, uh, we're doing like great service. Yeah. Um, by, by critiquing. Um, and to have so many thoughtful people that contributed, like our guests that took the time. Yeah, it was so great. Yeah. So great. Um, but I, so the, the, the loyalty issue is definitely, that was like mostly I was thinking of the people that work in the institution. Mm-hmm. I'm just really, really glad that we like insisted from the start that like we can't just have people working in the institution. Right. Like, that would have been so dry. Imagine that would be so bad. <laughs> But I mean, from the conversations we've had, there's definitely some people who have been fighting for change, and it sounds like they're having some resistance from their colleagues. And I think that the recent conversations and the petitions that you mentioned that have been happening in Norway and other places in the world um, are going to make those people have to confront confront the things that they've been avoiding, you know? Like, um, you know, how we were talking about the black square. I, I mean, it didn't do much, but at the same time, if you're, if you're going to put a black square there, you're saying something about yourself, the image you want to portray about your institution. And so yeah, then... I think it's been really useful. I think it's been useful because then you have the op- opportunity yeah. to call people out. Like, I had a friend yeah. who, um, an institution, not an institution, a shop that she worked for posted some quote from Desmond Tutu and it was kind of like, if you say nothing, then you're, you become the oppressor. You're like, you're on the side of the oppressor. Oh, yeah. And so she wrote me and was like, I, this shop is, when I worked there, they told me specifically to follow black customers around and they would watch on the camera and I would, she said she would just walk away or she would actually treat them like a, like you should treat a customer. Can I help you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, not follow someone and, and be rude Jesus. to them. Jesus. And so she called them out on their post and she said, I'm glad you're, you know, standing for change now because when I worked for you, you were telling me to profile black customers so that they deleted her comment. Then she posted again, they deleted again. So that's really telling if someone's not willing, you know, they say that we stand for justice, we stand for against racism and then they aren't willing to take any kind of criticism from someone, a person of color who worked for them, who's like, actually, that is not how it is at all. So yeah, a lot of people have been able to speak out about what's happening at their school or workplace places they've been and I think in that way it's really it's been really useful because it's calling out hypocrisy Mm. but I think with um I've just been thinking about this like the um uh, within with the museum as a large institution or any large institution so in this moment in time uh, there's maybe someone in communications or there's someone in the workplace that somehow somehow pushes like okay we have to do something in um uh, to show uh, support Mm-hmm. And sh- and to show that we're, they want to we want to commit to like anti racist work, mm-hmm. and of course maybe and like who is to say oh we can't do that, 
So then uh, a, a few people in an organization manages to get that through. Yeah. So I, I think I, you can also think of these um, sort of complaints or holding people accountable. Uh, I think sometimes in, in organizations, it can also be like a strategic move for people within the organizations mm-hmm. to make the organizations do like public... Um, support i'm doing like air quotes uh support or these like visual what's it called uh Symbols. symbolic yeah gestures yeah uh that can also be like a smart move from like a uh, soul people within the institution because they know at the moment now people will be held accountable genius social media can be so powerful yeah in a good way sometimes yeah oh you're not at home are so you maybe it's no ah I'm in the I'm in the countryside. What is it like? It's really beautiful. So now I just like uh went for a walk with one other artist. Mm-hmm. Just like one hour before it cuz then I'd been like on the couch being like all emo- <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> emotional. Uh but it's really beautiful. Nice. So, it's kind of nice to have this like a smaller life. And how much longer do you have there? 2 weeks. Oh, good. Does any part of you want to... Should we read anything from our proposal? Because we could... I mean, we... Oh, let me see. Okay. So one of the things that we had written in our proposal was that we would give advice to the museum, which meant they had to formulate questions and reflect on their own needs. Um, so one of the things that we were, have been frustrated with was the way that... I don't think a lot of the questions came from the museum. No, no, no. Because literally, like, I knew where questions were coming from. I was like, oh, this is that curator after I sent him or her that email. Yeah. And that's from that friend. Oh, that's, a, that's an American question. Right. We didn't ask Lisa now, but we, like, but we also addressed it earlier on, like, will people listen to our advice? Mm-hmm. And the reason... And uh, just, just, like, looking at how, the, how all the institutions are reacting now with uh, Black Lives Matter and everything, like obviously they've never listened to any any advice because no. they're like oh, oh you don't know that people have been trying to give you advice for centuries right <laughs> i know i know uh, but this is a good time to go and to be able to uh point back to advice that has been given in the past you know people can use this time to say i actually filed a complaint three years ago i said this on a podcast yeah. five years ago I wrote you a letter 10 years ago, <laughs> you know, we're going to end with the way that we started, which was our proposal. Um, Lisa invited us to do the podcast and said, write a proposal of what you want to do at the museum. Um, Ask Adelaide and Anna is an advice podcast started in the spring of 2019 by Anna Ile and Adelaide Jagaday. Season one took questions anonymously via a Google form, allowing advice seekers to submit questions regarding primarily relationships and finances. We were invited to participate in Coast Contemporary in October 2019, where for season two, we sought advice on behalf of our audience from cultural workers present at the event over five days on, you're going to have to say it, Ha-Holmen? Ho-Holmen. Ho-Holmen Island and aboard, <laughs> you're going to have to say the name of the ship. Ruten. There you go. I could never say that. The conversations we had in the informal setting of our cabin and on board the ship with advice givers allowed us to procure responses from people in positions of power, curators, directors, organizers, etc., that we and our audience do not typically have this kind of access to. Furthermore, the ability to submit anonymously made room for questions one might be fearful to ask in the light of day, such as when the ideal time in one's career might be to have children, 
and how to deal with instances of bias while working with or within institutions. So our proposal was as follows. As the institution takes a new shape, there are bound to be blind spots and areas for improvement. The museum, with a desire to be more self-reflective and transparent, has sought the help of Ask Adelaide and Anna. And we made, it, we made this up, this part, because we have to assume they want to be self-reflective and transparent. <laughs> As different kinds of emojis. <laughs> As independent cultural workers who love giving advice, Adelaide and Anna feel privileged to be in a position to give a major institution our advice. We seek to use this project as a way to discuss the broader issues faced by institutions and connecting to their public, uh, with the National Museum as one example. For season three, our proposal is twofold. We will give advice to the museum. This means that they will have to formulate questions and reflect on their own needs. The season puts the museum in a position of the one who needs help. What are the areas they feel doubtful about? What are their fears and hopes? How can their public help them achieve those goals or at least move closer to them? What questions will lead to advice that can help them avoid common institutional pitfalls? In instances where the museum doesn't know how to ask the right questions themselves, we will also ask the public and staff at other institutions what kinds of things they think the National Museum needs to be asking. So we've sort of failed, or they failed. They failed, we failed. Where Did we hear about their fears and hopes? We didn't hear about any fears or hopes. Maybe hope. No. Maybe hopes. We yeah. we hope that everyone will feel welcome. We hope, just kind of vague, general things. Yeah. But there were no pointed uh, questions for. I didn't feel like anything was. Uh... Well, I can't, that's not true. I feel like. No. For instance, Rolf. Asked some good questions of us. Which episode? Yeah. Was that? Shout out to Shout Rolf. Out. <laughs> Um, but in general uh, people from the museum didn't really ask us for advice they did a little bit but it was like because we, we were somehow hoping that we could make them do some more work yeah but then at the same time it's just a sprinkling of individuals from different departments yeah yeah and we had to hope that it was a good representation of the museum but we don't know <laughs> We don't know. <sighs> Maybe we should just point out that um, the reason why all the artists were in Oslo was because we were supposed to go there. Not, yeah. not that there's some kind of Oslo preference happening here. No. Good point. And we were supposed to be in Stavanger. That's why the Stavanger students were in Stavanger. <laughs> That's why they were Stavanger students. Yeah, it's not just random. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, this, I want to take this opportunity to have this little speech. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, to say thank you for listening to our podcast this season. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, because if someone listens to it, maybe it means that they listened to all the episodes. Mm-hmm. And then they went back to maybe. season two and they were like, oh my goodness, the season is even better. <laughs> Oh yeah, I think season and then two they're good. Is and the first season, they're like that was the way best. <laughs> no, I think there are like episodes, or like there are these like jewels spread out. Exactly. So you have to listen to all of it <laughs> to find even all all the really really bad audio. I know this entire season was recorded at home, uh, so nobody was together. No one was together. Is that even proper grammar? No one was together. 
Well, you're just like speaking too much to <laughs> to like non-native speakers. Oh, but it's been good. I mean, if I could speak a language that well, I'd be impressed. So, do you think we'll be invited for the opening of the National Museum? I hope so. Thanks for listening to season three of Ask Adelie and Anna, which was commissioned by the National Museum in Norway.